All right, all right. Hey, Rockbridge, want to welcome you. My name is uh, Matt, one of the pastors on our, our team, and just want to welcome you however you're choosing to join with us at any of our physical locations as we're one church in multiple locations, or perhaps you're tuning in, watching online. So however you're choosing to turn in, tune in, thank you so much uh, for being here. And, and let me just say from the beginning, uh, whether you're first time at Rockbridge or you've been coming here for, for a while, uh, this weekend, and this, this is a two-part series called The Question, it's going to be a, a little different. I, I'm sort of going to cast some vision for our church, for the season that we find ourselves in. I, I will be uh, probably a little more raw and, uh, and personal in uh, my, my communication. And I'm probably going to say some things imperfectly because that's uh, kind of who I am, right? And uh, so I just need your grace in that, this is a, a, a sermon series that's been brewing inside of me for a while. I think the events of uh, this, this past year and even this week in our country, uh, in God's providence, I think this is inc still incredibly timely that we ask one simple question going into 2021. And it's not the typical question of a new year, like what are your hopes and where do you want to be this time next year? It's not, hey, what are your resolutions? It's a different question. And, and to get to that question, I, I just want to invite you to go on a journey with me uh, in, in my role here as uh, the, the lead pastor and primary communicator and uh, things of that nature. So, it's important to me that we as a church always have clarity. And in a season of uncertainty, such as the pandemic and the presidential uh, politics and the issues of race that we've dealt with, the economic uncertainty, just things that happen in our lives, finding clarity in uncertainty is difficult. So as we were wrapping up 2020, a group of staff leadership team and I we got together to pray and to take the Lord's Supper and worship together. And uh, as part of that experience, we uh, just decided to listen to God. And, and so I, I, I withdrew to a place um, and just really felt, and, and this may sound weird and just give me grace, but I really just felt God said, you need to you go to Isaiah 17. And, uh, and God, that's sort of how God speaks to me when we adopted our boys, he, he sent me to Psalm 68. We started Rockbridge. It was Matthew 28, the Great Commission. So it's just a pattern of how God communicates personally to me, and, uh, and that's just me, I guess. But um, So I opened up Isaiah 17, and I, I read it. I didn't like what I read, and I didn't understand what I read. But I said, okay, I'm just going to, God, I'm going to assume by faith you've said that we need to go to Isaiah 17, and there's something in there for me personally or for our church corporately. And so I've spent a lot of time in Isaiah 17. I, I've read a lot of people way smarter than me who, ha, who understand Hebrew and history and all that. And, and so I'm just going to teach through Isaiah 17. And it's that passage that's going to give us our question for 2021. And so hopefully by God's grace, we'll receive God's clarity for our individual lives and our life as a church family for such a time as this. So Isaiah 17 it takes place in an interesting context. It's the year 735 to 732 BC. It's roughly that time period. And the Assyrian nation or empire is expanding rapidly in what we would call the Middle East or in, in around Israel. 
and they are threatening the Jewish people or the nation of Israel. So in light of this threat, a political military alliance is formed. Just like we sometimes will form treaties with people or allies or partner with someone militarily to counter a threat or something. This is the same thing. The Israelites, the northern kingdom of Israel, formed an alliance with Syria or Aram, uh, and the capital of Syria is Damascus, and the northern kingdom uh, centered around this city called Ephraim. And, and so they formed this alliance to protect them from the Assyrian aggression. And so there's some similarities is, that are going on it, between us and them, okay? Because people are people. I mean, people in 2020, 2021, our, our nature, our tendencies haven't changed. So today, just like back then, we do not like threats to our normal, our lifestyle, or our wishes and our wants. We do not like threats to those things. And when threats arise, I mean, we want to resist those. And and, in 2021 and 2020 uh, has been a year like that, right? Where we've not gotten what we wanted and couldn't do what we wished for. And our lifestyles have been changed or our lifestyles have been threatened. Our normal has been interrupted and disrupted. And, And just like today, just like back then, we expect God to help. And we make an assumption, and and they made it too, that what we want, God also wants. That God is interested in preserving our lifestyle, preserving our normal, giving us our wishes and wants. And so we make that assumption. They made that assumption. And then also, just like back then, when we are faced with a problem, we we believe that we must act quickly to fix it, to solve it, and to mend it. And so they formed a political military alliance. They, they, they did this thing and brought it together and said, hey, this is going to protect us. This is going to help us. And we do the same things, right? I mean, we put our hopes in our ability to make a dollar. We put our hopes in getting our person elected to office. We put our hopes in science. We put our hopes in medicine. We put our hopes in our own ingenuity. And, hey, I can do it and God can help like God's Home Depot or something, right? I mean, we do all those kinds of things. And so as I got into Isaiah 17, I was like, man, this is just it's just speaking to me, and I think it might be speaking to our people at Rockbridge Community Church or, or, or wherever you're, you're watching from here this weekend. And so we get into the Word of God. The message came to me concerning Damascus. So Isaiah is the prophet, and God is speaking, Damascus being the capital of Syria. So this is that partner that Israel formed with, the, the Syrians. Look, the city of Damascus will disappear. It will become a heap of ruins. So the alliance is not going to work. You are not going to be protected. The towns of Damascus will be deserted. Flocks will graze in the streets and lie down undisturbed. So the city will be in disrepair and be overrun by the animals. With no one to chase them away, the fortified towns of Israel will also be destroyed and the royal power of Damascus will end. So the Assyrian threat is going to be realized and actualized. You will not be protected. Your lifestyle will not be preserved. Your wishes and wants are not going to be realized. All that remains of Syria will share the fate of Israel's departed glory, declares the Lord of heaven's armies. And so this is a scary passage. As you can imagine, the first time I read it, I was like, oh, God, we're talking about judgment. And we're talking about bad things happening to your people. 
and we're talking about human ingenuity not working. And we're talking about human methodology not bearing fruit. And we're talking about futility and frustration, God. And the story continues. In that day, Israel's glory will grow dim. Its robust body will waste away. The whole land will look like a grain field after the harvesters have gathered the grain. It will be desolate. Only a few of the people will be left like stray olives left on a tree after the harvest. Only two or three remain in the highest branches. Four or five scattered here and there on the limbs. So, hey, there's some good that's going to remain. There's some okay, there's some stuff that will hang around, but the vitality will be gone. And what you formed this alliance for is just, it'll be futile. Declares the Lord the God of Israel. And, and that phrase declares the Lord is important and it's difficult because God is saying to Israel, I am allowing this to happen to you. I am permitting one of the most evil armies on the planet to overtake your cities. I am not blessing, preserving, or protecting your lifestyle, your normal, your wishes, and your wants. I agree that's hard to read. You can see why when I read that, I was like, oh God, I don't really want to preach this. I don't know what this means. Um, but it's a burden I got to share with you. And so I started you know, pressing into this, and, and you're like, okay, God, what, what, are, we, what are we showing here? And what are, we, what are we teaching here? And why are you allowing this? And what, what, was, what would they do wrong? What's going on? And in verse 7, we get a glimpse of what maybe God was doing. He says, then at last, so finally, finally, the people will look to their creator and turn their eyes to the Holy One of Israel. So, so what this means is when they formed this alliance, when they did what they thought needed to be done to protect their wishes and wants, their normal and their lifestyle, and they thought God was in on it and God wanted what they wanted, they weren't looking to God. They weren't looking to God. And, and, and the, the crazy thing about it is this little verb, this little phrase, this little noun right here, the people. The Hebrew for that is the word that we get the word Adam from. And it's the universal Hebrew word for humanity. So it's almost like, hey, this is going on in 735 to 732 BC. But this happens to people all people throughout time where they don't want to look to God. They don't want to turn their eyes to the only one of Israel. So if they're not looking at God and not turning to God, and if this is what people, all people, me people, you people, us people tend to do, what do they do? They will no longer look to their idols for help or worship what their own hands have made that people tend to look to things 
other than God to solve their problems, to preserve their prosperity, and to give them life, or at least a lifestyle. And so in this passage, there's a pattern that begins to emerge. And the first part of the pattern is what I'll just call the drift. And, and, and the drift is something that all people do. Not that, that word Adam, that, word, that Hebrew word is all of humanity. It's the drift that I have found in my heart. It's the drift I have seen in our church. It's the drift I have seen in our communities. It's the drift that I have seen in the, in the country that I love. It's this drift. And it's this drift that without intervention, without grace, and without mercy, we're all going to go in this direction. And we're all going to be susceptible to moving in this direction. And the drift is simply this. It's a drift away from reliance and dependence and trust in God. Say it again. It's the tendency to think, I don't need God, or I don't need to depend upon God. I am an independent American. I am an independent, self-sufficient person. I can be self-reliant, self-sufficient, self-competent, and be okay. And God will help me when I need him to help me. And other than that, I'm okay. And it's that drift that Israel was guilty of. It's that drift that all of humanity was guilty of. It's the drift that happened in Genesis 3. Hey, God set everything up. Depend upon God, trust his word, go in his direction, follow his mission. But the drift was, oh, we can do something apart from God and maybe we can do it better than God. So we'll go taste and see. Right? And so it's this drift away from reliance and dependence upon God, which should be our first resort, our last resort, our first option, our best option. Dependence upon God is our default position. Dependence upon God, dependence upon God should be our lock screen. You know what your lock screen is, right? In your, in your, on your smartphone, it just comes to something. A lot of us put pictures of our family or you know, a team we love or, or a symbol or a memory or something. And that when our lives just kind of fall and, and go to that default screen, what should show up is dependence upon God. But we drift and we move away from that. We move away from God. And so in that drift... As I'll continue reading in verse 9, in that drift, God comes back and, and talks about the, the challenge. God comes back and talks about what's, uh, what's happening. And he sa it says this in God's word. It says, on that day, their strong cities will be like the abandoned woods and mountaintops. There will be desolation. And God says, for you have forgotten the God of your salvation. And you have failed to remember the rock of your strength. 
And the, and the interesting thing here is, remember, they formed this little military political alliance. They trusted in their politics and trusted in their military. And, and God said, uses a military term right here. That's the, actually a term you could probably be better translated in Hebrew to be fortress. And he's like, hey, you forgot the, the one who rescues you, saves you, delivers you. And, and you have failed to remember the one who protects you, sustains you, and is the source of your true life. The rock of your strength. Therefore, and look what he says. You will plant beautiful plants. And you'll set out cuttings from exotic vines. In other words, you'll go to work. And you'll do things that you've normally done and that normally produce what you want them to produce. But on the day that you plant and you will help them to grow and in the morning you will help your seed to sprout. But the harvest will vanish on the day of disease and incurable pain. In other words, he said, look, you're going to go do what you've always done, but you're not going to get the results you've always gotten. You're going to go and pursue your productivity and your routines and you want life to work and you want to plant and it to grow and you to harvest and you to reap. But you're going to do that and you're going to plant and it's going to grow, but the harvest is not going to come. And, and so God, in this drift away from reliance and dependence upon him, God brings a disruption when the works and wants that we have and that we engage in are frustrated. And there's a sense of futility. Our staff had a staff retreat. And we had an outside pastor from the Atlanta area come in and speak. And he had this statement. And it was so powerful. He said, people are working harder but getting half the results. That's exactly what I'm reading in Isaiah 17. You're going to go to work and you're going to, you just, because listen, don't, don't we just want life to work? Don't we just want things to, you know, I do A and then B follows and I do B and C follows and I do this and this happens and we make money and we go on vacation and everything, and everybody's healthy and life is normal and then we retire and everything's good. And then God just throws this disruption in a monkey wrench, in our plans, in our normal, in our wants, in our work, everything. And this scripture shows me something, though. That this disruption is under God's sovereignty. That means he is in control of it. He's never lost control. And, and my fellow Americans, listen to me. Some of you are unglued. Because of the results of the election. On January 20th at noon, the person that is sworn in as our president will be under the sovereignty of God. You can go read Daniel 2:21 and argue with the word of the Lord. He's that sovereign. He's that in control. The Assyrian army was under his sovereignty, but it was designed for discipline. Designed for discipline. You discipline those you love. And so God is doing something, working something in his people then, now, and forever. Now, now here's the challenge. We would call these tests of our faith. Tests of our faith often feel like threats to our faith. 
But in reality, they are purposed by God to build our faith in him or bring our faith back to him and away from ourselves and our own ingenuity and our own devices. And so just to forecast where we're going, we're going to spend two weeks on the question, which we haven't gotten to yet, and then we'll go into a series called Battle Tested as we wrestle with the test that God has designed, that God is allowing under his sovereignty and for his disciplining purposes. And so here's what we have to understand. God will disrupt our lifestyles. God will disrupt our lifestyles to bring us to life as he designed it. He designed us to be dependent upon him. He designed us to need breath. He designed us to require sleep. That tells me we're not all powerful and all capable. He designed us to depend upon, draw life from with and, and from him and with him and in him. So he will disrupt us to bring us back to him. And then finally, at the end of the passage, we get a little bit of relief or, or maybe good news. He says, ah, the roar of many peoples. They are the roar like the roaring of the seas. The raging of the nations, they rage like the rumble of rushing water. The nations rage like the rumble of a huge torrent. He rebukes them, God rebukes them, and they flee far away, driven before the wind like chaff on the hills and like the tumbleweeds before a glare. In the evening, sudden terror. Before morning, it is gone. This is the fate of those who plunder us and the lot of those who ravage us. In other words, the threat from Assyria will eventually go away. Eventually, this army that has plundered, this army that has destroyed, this army that has made your two major cities desolate, eventually this army is going to go away and the discipline of God is going to be removed and the duration of this discipline is finite and is temporary. So, so the good news is this, the agents of God's discipline and the duration of that discipline are temporary, but the lessons must endure. The lessons must endure. So eventually, the mercy of God through the discipline of God is going to be withdrawn. And the duration of that will be finite and limited. It won't last forever. This too shall pass. But the lesson that God is trying to teach his people and give his people cannot be temporary. The goal cannot be to get just survive. The goal must be to don't leave the season without the lesson the season was designed to bring. And so as I, I, we think about that, and I think about what does it take for discipline to work? In me and you and my kids, your kids, discipline is not going to be effective. It will not take root and it will not endure unless humility is present. Unless humility is present. Now, humility is... Um, one of these words that's tough, right? Because it's less of me. It's not about me. Uh, humility, though, is the one condition we find in Scripture that we must meet to be blessed. You cannot be saved without humility because you have to know that you need Christ and you can't do it on your own. You have to know that you needed a Savior, a ransom to be paid, a debt to be paid that you couldn't pay. 
You have to admit that you're not good enough, can't be, never will be. And so you need someone else's goodness and righteousness and all that's been provided in Jesus. And so humility is the only blessable position, but it's the thing we get so wrong. So I, I, I was studying one of the last great revivals in our nation, the Great Awakening. Jonathan Edwards and his church, his ministry was instrumental, used by God. And as he was reflecting on this revival, and I'm going to paraphrase his language because it's a little old school language, but when he was asked about why do these revivals end, and he said spiritual pride. He said people who are so zealous for God's work become so prideful that they begin to see other people's sins as greater than their own. So in reflection on humility, I said, God, what's the definition of humility? Because the church has got to get this right. And and I think the definition of humility that, that God is talking about to us is this, that we would get in a place again as the church of God, the church that confesses Christ as Lord and Savior and knows that nothing but the blood of Jesus will save us. That we get to a place of humility where we are more bothered of our sins than their sins. That we are more suspicious of the sin that lurks in our hearts than in the hearts of other people out there. That we are more interested in fighting the sin nature and the sin temptations in us. And that we would say, you know what? I've got to work and be burdened for my own soul and my own sins and my own temptations. Because let's face it, church in America. The church in America is better at self-righteousness than we are at humility. Go read Christians social media posts go look at how Christians have acted in this political season and I I go back to this thing that Paul wrote Paul who wrote half the New Testament Paul who we could say is one of the greatest Christians ever to live look at how Paul saw himself This is a trustworthy saying, and everyone should accept it. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, and I am the worst of them all. He was more concerned with his own sin than the sin that was prevalent in the Roman world. And do you know some of the sins in the Roman world? Yeah, they had abortion too. But after the babies were born, they would just lay them off in the woods beside the road. They didn't respect human sexuality as designed by God either. They had an emperor who could just say and kill whoever he wanted to kill. And Paul says, but I'm the worst sinner. You know, when you have that kind of humility, you'll never lock eyes with someone and vilify them for your own vindication. You'll never lock eyes with someone that you can't understand and you can't, and you can't honor because you're like, man, if God died for me and I'm the worst of them, then I know he loves you too. 
And I just think, church, we've got to come back to that true biblical humility. Now listen, listen, listen. I, here's the thing. Here's what makes this kind of hard for some Christian people. Because, listen, listen. I understand. I believe the Word of God is the Word of God. We're right as Christians about a lot of the things going on in our world today. We're right because we follow a resurrected Jesus who taught that every life matters from conception to natural death. We're right that racism is wrong and evil. I I, I get all that. Okay, but listen, 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 listen. If we express rightness in a way that is not Christ-like, we are wrong. And you will never find another human being as humble as the Lord Jesus Christ himself. He is God, yet he became one of us and required sleep for the first time ever. He is God, and he was born to poor teenage parents. He is God, and he was born in a feeding trough in a stall. He is God, and he washed people's feet. He is God, and he took on my sins and your sins When he hung on a cross, you'll never find a humility like that. So if God's whole purpose for you and I is to be Christ-like, to be his witnesses, and to represent him, then for the love of God, church, we've got to come back to humility. And I don't say that preaching at you. I say that preaching to myself. Well, my family, we went to Disney World. Over the new year. And, and, and you can see a lot of sinfulness at Disney World. And as I'm reflecting on that, God the Holy Spirit showed me, you know whose sinfulness he showed me? My own. By how frustrated I got at my kids, at certain extent, at workers, at the, oh, the parks. And I'm like, well, who do I think I am? So God's been working this in me, church. Please hear me. I'm not preaching at you. I'm with you here. And and this is why, though, we have to embrace this, okay? There's a lot of Christians talking about God's judgment on America, God's judgment on America. Listen to me. God's judgment always begins at home with his own people. Now, Now, you can disagree with me, but you cannot disagree with the word of God. It is time for judgment to begin with the household of God. Isaiah 17 was God's judgment on God's chosen people, not the Assyrians, on the house of God. So if I just had to summarize Isaiah 17 in a sentence... In a universal application for all of Adam, right? All of mankind and womankind and humanity. It would be this. Reliance upon human means, human methods, and power will fail. Only trust in God will prevail. It takes humility to believe and accept and embrace the first sentence. The first part of the sentence. That depending upon what I can do, what I can think up, And what power I can muster will fail. It takes humility to understand that. Only trust in God will prevail. I think we're at a critical time as a a church. And the invitation or the lesson is to learn this, that hope in what we can do will frustrate us and fail us. 
I mean, if this season for people who have hoped in and trusted in politics, I hope we see the frustration that brings. Hope in science, frustrating. Hope in other people, frustrating. Hope in uh, myself, frustrating. 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 Israel, you hoped this alliance would work. That political military alliance was, you hoped it would work. But it didn't. Because you didn't look to God. And from all of that, here I think is the question that God would pose to us in our time. As we look ahead to 2021, do we want a future based on what we can do? Or do we want a future based on what God can do? That's the question. Do we want a future based on what we can do? Listen, we can do diets. We can do gym memberships. We can do politics. We can run companies. We can build buildings. We can produce carpet. We can save money. We can go to doctors. We can have surgeries. We can take vaccines. We can do all those things. We can form alliances. We can mobilize the vote. We can lobby our politicians. Nothing wrong with any of that stuff. That's what we can do. That's what we can do. Israel can make an alliance. Israel can align politically and militarily. Or do we want a future based on what God can do? See, I, I think we're all here in some level of disillusionment. I think that's where God wants us. Not to be disillusioned with him. Not to be disillusioned with other people. But to be disillusioned with what we can do, with our finiteness, our resources, our ingenuity. And so into that disillusionment is the redemptive discipline of God asking us to turn back to him. And so I firmly believe, based on the authority of the word of God, God has positioned his true church his true church for an incredible season because he has positioned us where the only real thing we can do is the absolute best thing we can always do, which is to pray. Now, I... I, I that sounds cliche, I know. I know. I could ask a 
thousand Christians and a thousand churches. And I could say, hey, do you pray? And they'd all say yes. But do we really pray? Like it all depends upon God? Or are our prayers more, God, would you just bless what I can do? God, would you just do what I think needs to be done? God, would you just give me the lifestyle, give me the normal, give me what I wish for and what I want? Or are we going to pray for what God can do? So yes, church, there are details to come, but we will have a church-wide call to pray and fast on the 20th. I am personally inviting and asking all Rock Bridgers to participate. We'll continue in this series next weekend. Next Wednesday on the 13th at 6.30, we'll be, on, uh, we'll be live at rockbridge.cc or on Facebook. I'm going to teach us a great method to always pray prayers God wants to answer. And then we'll do Q&A and we'll talk about prayer. If, if you want to ask me a question about what's going on in the world today, I'll be happy to do my best to answer it. Moving forward, our church services, our small group practices, our ministry team practices will look different. We're fleshing this out as we speak. We're building the plane as we're flying it. Um, Something I know God's been telling me to do for at least 10 plus years. I've studied three different pastors and I've never pulled the trigger. That's on me. That's not on you. That's my repentance, my failure of leadership, but God's grace is greater is that I, you know, he's called me to form a, a pastor prayer team for people who fer- feel personally drawn to pray for me, with me, and for the mission of this church. The model that we're using could expand to be thousands of people. I've just asked God for seven to ten to get it going, and he has already graciously provided that. If, you, if something's resonating in your spirit right now, hey, I want to do that. I'll be a part of that. I want to know more about that. Just shoot me an email, matt at robbridge.cc, and I'll be happy to share with you the commitment that that'll be part of that. But there are going to be so many handlebars and so many ways that we can mobilize to be a people who pray. But, but here's the real question, and I'm going to end with this question. And we got more work to do on this. We don't have enough time in one service but the Puritans had a phrase, and I've, I've read this phrase multiple times, and it just keeps coming back. Because, again, like I said, most Christians, most churches are like, yeah, we're, we're supposed to pray. Yeah, we, I, yeah, I pray. But the, the Puritans had this phrase, and the phrase was called, pray until you pray. So here's my question. I know many of you pray. I know this church prays. But will we pray until we really pray? That's really the question. And what does that mean? It means that we would push past our initial distractions and our mere formality and into genuine relation, connection to Jesus Christ that we know as we pray, we are communing with the God of the universe who has sovereignly ordained to move history forward according to his will and his eternal purposes through the prayers of his dependent, humble people. So will we pray until we pray? So the question is this. Do we want a year based on what we can do?
Or do we want a year and a future of what God can do? And I share this with you. There is great expectancy that comes from great dependency. That when I depend upon a God who loves me so much, he refuses to let me settle for what I can do. I can expect things greater than I can ask or imagine from a great God like that. And that's why I tell you, Rockbridge, if we would answer the question, God, we don't want a year based on what we can do. We want a year based on what you can do. Then we can all leave here with that commitment forming in our hearts and we can believe beyond a shadow of a doubt that the best is yet to come. Let's pray together. God, I, I first want to ask for forgiveness for myself, our leadership, and any others who feel led to pray this, that God, the real pandemic is a pandemic of prayerlessness among your people. God, your church has probably chosen tactics that we can think of and we can execute more than prayer as our strategy. God, some of us have hoped more in politics and in the personalities of those politics than in the person of Jesus Christ. God, some of us have trusted more in our own understanding and leaned on it more than trusted in you with all our hearts. So I'm going to just ask on behalf of those who that resonates with, by the blood of your son, would you forgive us? God, when I study revival, I read this just today. Revival is always preceded by a great awakening of prayer in the people of God. A great sense of judgment and discipline received with humility, not defensiveness amongst the people of God. God, for the church that you let me be part of leading, would you give us that humility and forgive us of self-righteousness? And God, would you give us a true spirit of prayer? Not check the box, now I lay me down to sleep. I prayed today prayer, but I prayed until I prayed prayer. I prayed until I knew I was in your presence, God, and that I was praying your will and I was hearing from you and communing with you and experiencing intimacy with you, God. And Lord, that's going to take commitment and sacrifice. And God, we need your help because we so easily choose convenience over commitment. When you chose a cross. So Lord God, I pray you would give us a sense of holy burden 
to become a true house of prayer for all the nations. I confess, God, I cannot preach us to being a praying people. I confess, God, that left to myself, I will choose more TV, more football, more of anything else but prayer. I see in my own life, God, over the past so many years, how Satan has devised to keep me more off my knees. And I need to repent of that right here, right now. But God, I need you and we need you to truly teach us to pray. So would you, Lord Jesus, by the searching power of your spirit, would you just find us surrendered? God, I don't want, I, I really, God, I, I'm so tired. I'm so tired of, of preaching sermons and people walk out and say, oh, great sermon, and then nothing changes. So, God, I'm not dependent on my preaching. I am dependent upon the power and the presence of your Holy Spirit and inviting you to speak to your people right now based on the truth and the authority of the Word of God contained in Isaiah 17 that we would move forward and say, yes, God, we want a year and a future based on what you can do. So we will surrender and we will pray. This we pray. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen.